All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I'm talking to you from the borough of Queens in New York City. This is the 10th day of May, 2022. I want to thank all of you for listening to the show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. And I want to invite you to continue to send along whatever comments you have about this show to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. We do need to need and want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Today's sponsors, Irving Resources, Novo Resources, Eloro Resources, Coro Asset Corp., Timberline Resources, Lion One Metals, SK Mining, and Reina Gold Corp. I've titled today's show, Keynesian Value Destruction. Alistair McLeod, Dr. Quentin Henning, and Michael Oliver return as this week's guests. About the time President Nixon detached gold from the international monetary system back in August 1971, he declared that we are all Keynesians now. The acceptance of the Keynesian economic religion by President Nixon, subsequent American presidents, and 99% of the American economic intelligentsia guaranteed that in time the U.S. financial system would self-destruct because in reality Keynesian economics is an anti-capitalist, anti-free market economic system. Some have dubbed it communist light. The belief that Lord Keynes operated under was that those who save to build capital and use it to get rich are acting immorally. In his eyes, it is immoral to save your money and use it to buy real estate, for example, that you use then to build wealth at the expense of renters. Keynes didn't see a need for the supply side of the economy. He emphasized the demand side of economic uh, of the economic equation with government providing demand by way of deficit spending. And boy, oh boy, did the Western world zealously follow the Keynesian religion. So we Americans have consumed far more than we have produced for decades on end, and that may be about to come to an end. Meantime, since Nixon removed the international gold stand, gold from, since he removed the international gold standard, America has hollowed out its manufacturing base and run massive chronic trade deficits owing massive amounts of money to foreign nations, even as Americans themselves have built up domestic debts to levels that assure a decreased living standard for most Americans for decades to come. As retired Federal Reserve economist Lacey Hunt pointed out recently, when nations have a debt-to-GDP ratio of 90%, it drastically slows down growth. America's current, America's current debt-to-GDP is around 130%. Just as families can't live beyond their means for long, 
The same ultimately holds true for nations as well, even powerful ones like the United States. So we want to address some questions today, such as will the Keynesians at some point in the future learn their lessons, learn the ways of their lessons, learn that they've, that they've really made some bad mistakes? What events might need to take place to wake the policymakers up to their false anti-free market religion? Meantime, how should we all prepare as the air from this massive printing press bubble is escaping both in the debt and equity markets? Those and many more questions I will be asked of Alistair McLeod, who will join me in the second half of today's show. With equity markets melting down and with many people believing this is only the beginning of a serious bear market, few investors may be interested right now in investing in gold and silver exploration stories. But if this financial market meltdown is anything like prior ones, gold and silver-related investments are likely to be the first out-of-the-gate star performers once the Fed starts running the printing presses full blast once again. Dismal markets like this one offer the best time to educate yourself about fundamental values of companies that, when markets stop declining, uh, you're ready to pick up quality stocks at bargain basement prices. One such opportunity, in my view, is El Oro Resources that appears to be in the process of outlining a multi-billion ounce silver equivalent deposit in Bolivia. In a few minutes, Dr. Quentin Henning will join me to update us on El Oro, on that company's Isca Isca project in Bolivia. But right now, I'm helping to tell you that Michael Oliver is with me once again to help us make some sense out of these really tumultuous markets. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Hey, Jay. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's, it's a crazy time. Uh, markets are really in turmoil, it would seem. Uh, I just wonder if you can – do you have a sense of how far – these equity markets might melt down, and to what extent do you think uh, the the treasury markets will continue to be in sync with the uh, with the equity markets? Well, it's uh, it's an interesting year so far. Uh, again, put yourself in an investor's position uh, who buy, a guy who buys well at low risk, high reward levels, uh, mm -hmm. proper entry levels on any given market. But look at what's happened, you know, and you look at your markets every year, let's say, you know, not every week. But anyway, as of the end of last year to date, the S&P is now down 16%. Okay, mm -hmm. so not too good. NASDAQ mm -hmm. 100, the leader index, is down 24%. Now, mm -hmm. um, not to tout, toot our horn here, but uh, M uh, MSA called those tops shortly after the highs. Uh, not... not few percentage off the highs. So we're quite bearish long term, not, mm -hmm. not just a downside trade. But then there's other markets that are also critical, especially to the Fed. It's muni bond market. Right now, the muni bond market is at a level that if it closes the month here, it will close below all monthly closes going back to 2014. Mm -hmm. Okay. Wow. Uh, that's a popular investment medium. Okay. Yeah. High yield corporate debt market. <laughs> Pardon me is if it closes the month where it is now, it'll close below all monthly closes since 2009. Wow. There's only the bare lows of 2009 were lower than where it is now. So high-yield corporate debt is imploding. Now, that's just so far, four, five months into the year, four and a half months into the year. Uh, now, also, the TLT, which is the ETF of long-term government bonds, mm -hmm. net on the year is now 21%. Wow. Okay, so these are all major portfolio asset categories. They're mm -hmm. imploding. 
the Fed is not causing a collapse in commodities. Commodities are up 20% on the year right now so far. And even mm-hmm. gold, which is now being dragged down, admittedly, by the collapsing stock market, is only barely up on the year, eight-tenths of 1%, in fact. It's still mm-hmm. up on the year, though. Okay, so relatively speaking, it's hanging in there. The question we have at MSA is, are we going to replicate one of the two isolated events of, as far as I'm concerned, of the last century, where gold has collapsed briefly with a sharp drop in the stock market? Now, mm-hmm. these two instances in everybody's mind, of course, March of 2020, everybody remembers that. It was just yesterday, okay? Uh, we had a collapse into uh, late February, early March uh, of 2020, with the S&P drop 35% in a matter of about three or four weeks. Gold finally, in the latter part of that break, joined in with a sharp drop, much less than that. It was about, uh, I think, about 15%. But still, it had a collapse. Mm-hmm. When we hit that low in March of 2020, gold was back to its high within seven trading days. <laughs> it went from 1700 to 1450 and within seven trading days was back at 1700 It took the S&P five months to grind its way out of the March low to reachieve the highs it had just before that collapse. Mm-hmm. Why did gold explode when the S&P was still in the hole in that instance? Well, it knew what was coming. I put quotes around new. It knew. What did mm-hmm. it know? It knew that the central bank was going to go ape because of what had happened to the equity markets and other markets that were, the Fed deems important. Uh, municipal bonds, high yield corporate debt, for example. So it did go berserk. Mm-hmm. The Fed, you know, uh, its balance sheet exploded. The money supply exploded like we've never seen. Mm-hmm. And sure mm-hmm. enough, the S&P gained from that. But so did gold. Gold went from, you know, 1450 low in March of 2020 to over mm-hmm. 2000 by uh, August of 2020. Mm-hmm. How mm-hmm. come gold knew that? Because you know, it, it is an anticipator of central bank lunacy. Okay, let's mm-hmm. go to the other instance. 2008 bear market. We peaked yep. in 2007 on the S&P. 2008, by all, October of 2008, the S&P finally had a collapse leg. It didn't just go down incrementally. It dropped 35% in a matter of several weeks. Mm-hmm. At that point, gold was at 950 bucks. excuse me, 925 and it suddenly said, I'm going to join in. It dropped to 681 in a matter of uh, several weeks, joining the stock market late, and then turned around and made new highs by February of the next year. Meanwhile, the S&P was continuing down until March of the next year. How come gold turned up from that sharp vortex low and went back to its highs very rapidly? What was its encouragement? It knew what the Fed was going to do. And sure enough, after that low in the stock market, the 2008-9 low, the Fed embarked on its QE programs and all that nice stuff they conjured up. Gold knew it was coming. Okay, Mm -hmm. here we have now a new situation, and I'm not even sure we're going to have a sharp vortex-type situation, a low in gold and a sharp break in the stock market. Stock market might just layer its way down. But right Mm -hmm. now there's a fear out there, oh, we're going to crash. Okay. Well, we're not sure of that because the short-terms on, short-term factors on gold right now don't quite accommodate that notion. Now, there's some levels below in gold that if we hit them, we'll be open to that possibility that we could get another vortex-type drop in gold and the stock market, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not there yet. We have to go down to about 1820 before we start to 
think that's viable. Right now we're 1840-plus. Um, the Those asset categories I uh, listed before, the muni bonds, the high-yield corporate debt, the S&P, the NASDAQ, are down such huge yep. percentages because of the Fed policy. Mm-hmm. And at some point, the Feds are going to realize, like the Bank of Japan, which has not shifted out of its uh, highly liquid you know, policy, mm-hmm. uh, and the ECB is sort of in a moderate stance compared to Bank of Japan and the Fed. They're sort of in between. But the Fed's gone berserk on this so-called tightening. But when these assets continue to implode and cause uh, dis- you know, disorder, so to speak, in the uh, minds of investors and economists and, uh, and the mm-hmm. public at some point, they're going to have to respond the other way. They're going to have to do a knee-jerk reverse back to the other policy. They have no choice. Mm-hmm. They can't let the muni bond market collapse. They can't yield high-yield corporate debt, and they can't let the S&P collapse. Mm-hmm. And yet we have the biggest stock market bubble in the American history. It is the oldest bull market, more than a dozen years. It's vertical. Its percentage gain was off the page. And when did it begin? When the Fed went crazy in 2008-9, and it mm-hmm. didn't quit. So the Feds are going to have to do it again, and gold knows at some point in the stock market decline and these other asset categories, the Fed is going to have to do a whiplash turn, and they'll lose all credibility when they do it, but they have to do it. They have no choice. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, these asset categories are going to implode on them. Mm -hmm. And gold knows that. So the question is, do we get a vortex sell-off in gold? Mm-hmm. Or do we not? And we're not sure about that right now on a short-term mm-hmm. basis. We're frankly mm-hmm. not sure we're even going to get one. But if yeah. we do, it's a buying opportunity just like those other two were. Mm-hmm. Well, we're certainly seeing the results of the Bank of Japan. Uh, their currency is, is really taking it on the chin. It's really going down very strongly against the dollar. I'm wondering, Michael, there was a question from a, a listener, a frequent listener named George. He wants to know, he says, most moves in gold these days are direct relations to the dollar, to the U.S. dollar going up or down. Some dollars, some dollar forecasts I have seen see the dollar index up at 120 in two years. Uh, so George wants to know, what are your thoughts, what are your thoughts, Michael, on where the dollar is headed, and do you expect gold to rally with an increase in the dollar if that no. comes to pass. Okay. Long term, the correlation between gold and the dollar index is very pathetic. Uh-huh. If you go back to 2015, the dollar was in a major bull market then. In fact, we got bullish at 78 on the dollar index, expected it to go to 100. In fact, it ultimately went to 103. But by December of 2015, it was trading at 98.65. Mm-hmm. You could draw a line sideways on the dollar index. And by the way, that index is really not a good index. It's, yeah. it's uh, 70% of it is two currencies, mostly the euro, You're right? and to some extent the yen. So all mm-hmm. the other currencies in the world don't matter. It's really right. a euro ETF. <laughs> okay? right. So right. Yeah, I don't know why they call it an index when one, yeah. one constitutes 57% of the index is euro. Okay? So yeah. put, really what you ought to be watching is just the euro instead of interpreting it as the broad dollar. But mm-hmm. the dollar index is now 103.90. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's three. It's, let's call it four percent higher than it was at the close of 2015. Mm-hmm. Gold traded double the price it was at the close of 2015. Right, right. 2000 is like double where it was then. Okay, mm-hmm. right now we're substantially above the 2015 low, and yet the dollar really hasn't gone anywhere but single-digit percentages. Mm-hmm. So, and as far as the sustained upside in the dollar, I don't think so. Yeah, uh, I right, think we've. Right. It's probably a place to be looking to go short now. 
But again, it's it's a function of the euro. So just look at the euro. Don't look at the dollar index as some kind of broad notion. Yeah. Well, uh, certainly, if you're if the Fed's going to start printing aggressively, I mean, we've been tight compared to the euro and the uh, and the yen. So that explains that uh, that run. Uh, but if you know, if once gold starts to run, uh, I guess that would be perhaps a an indication that the Fed is going to start to loosen things up, and then that might have some implications for other markets besides yeah, gold and silver. These other markets further decline yeah. there, whether it's a crash effect or, or just simply another, let's say, ratcheting down of 10 more percent in the S&P, you're going to have a lot of uh, gritting teeth in the Fed, Fed meetings uh, about, mm-hmm. oh, golly, do we really? Now, the, notice Powell's statement at, at the mm-hmm. March meeting, mm-hmm. uh, excuse me, the early May meeting. He said repeatedly, in little quotes, we're data sensitive. Yeah. We're still going to be data sensitive. Right. All, I think he's probably cheering for some bad numbers so he can uh-huh. pull back on, on that tightening policy. Yeah, well, we'll uh, have to see what I, happens. Inflation numbers coming out tomorrow, I think. So um, we're, we're going to have to leave it go at that, Michael. We're, we're past time, you, but it's always great. Your insights are so welcome and so so much uh, sought after. We, we thank you for sharing them with us. Thank you, Jay. All right, folks, uh, we're going to break now. Don't go away. Quentin Henning will be with us to talk about LRO Resources, a company that's on the way to, uh, it seems, building up and establishing a multi-billion ounce silver equivalent deposit. So don't go away. Quentin Henning will be right back. Lion Wine Metals is focused on high-grade gold in Fiji, led by legendary Canadian financier Walter Barakoff. Lion One is permitted for production and drilling for discoveries in one of the most exciting high-grade gold projects in the prolific South Pacific Ring of Fire. Lion One trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol LIO and on the OTCQX under the symbol LOMLF. Go to our website at liononemetals.com for more information about Lion One Metals and high-grade gold in Fiji. SK Mining Corp. Trading under the symbol ESK on the TSX Venture and ESKYF on the OTCQX is a mineral exploration company targeting precious metals, rich VMS deposits in the heart of British Columbia's Golden Triangle. SK Mining controls a prospective land package totaling 130,000 acres, which lies across a geologic trend that once hosted the prolific SK Creek Mine. With a world-renowned geological team, Funding in place and shareholders such as Eric Sprott. SK Mining is on the cusp of a world class discovery. Go to skmining.com to subscribe for updates. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. 
Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have Dr. Quentin Henning with me once again, this time to talk about El Oro Resources. That's a company that's developing one of the most remarkable new mineral deposits, I think, probably in the world, that being the Isca Isca Silver Tin Rich Polymetallic Deposit in Bolivia. It may well be one of the largest new silver deposits being outlined anywhere, uh, and it's a very exciting story, and so I'm really pleased to have Quentin with me today. El Oro trades in Canada under ELO as a symbol. In the US, in the US it's ELRRF. 64.4 million shares outstanding um, and $3.02 in this very wretched market that we have these days. That's in U.S. money. Gives it a market cap of $195 million. Well, that might sound like a big number for some of the companies that I cover in my newsletter, but not for this one because uh, the Isca Isca deposit that El Oro is working on is mammoth, and it's getting more and more mammothy every drill hole that's put down. Thanks for joining me, Quentin. Oh, thank you, Jay. That's, I love the way you put that. That's exactly right. Mammothy. Mammothy is a new word. I just created it. Anyway, uh, you know, the last time, I think the last time we talked was March 15th, and it was March 16th that Elora put out some news, Isca Isca uh, project from that project. They reported 351-meter intersection grading 182.34 grams silver equivalent. And in terms of ounces, I mean, we're looking at what would that be, something like six ounces over 351 meters, six ounces of silver equivalent. That's really spectacular. That particular hole was drilled to gain material for metallurgical testing, I believe, and it, along with another hole was drilled from an adit, an underground adit. But if you can recall that particular news release, what, what was learned from that? Yeah, look, uh, the the company has just had a, a long string of, of very highly successful drill holes. Um, the the one that you're talking about was in mid March, if memory serves. Uh, it hit uh, you know a, a, an incredible interval. Uh, so I'm, I'm gonna I actually fired it up so I could read the numbers. Okay, so uh, the one in March, which is March 16th, uh, was a 351 meter intercept of 182 gram per ton silver equivalent, and that was comprised of 30 gram per ton silver plus about 1.65% combined zinc lead as well as, there was a little copper in that interval, but there was also 0.11% tin. Okay, so that uh, is is a remarkable result, 182 grams silver per ton equivalent. You know, you, you kind of translate that, that into gold, which is what, where my brain goes instantly. <laughs> about things like this. You know, that's a, that's about uh, a little over two, call it 2.2 grams gold equivalent. So really, you know, you're talking about a drill that's nearly 800 gram meters. You know, and th- those are exceptional drill holes. Now, uh, what's what's remarkable about uh, the the new drilling that we've been seeing out of Iski Iski here over the past couple of months? Is that they're chasing the system uh, southward, and this is uh, there, there's a target they call the Santa Barbara target, which is really expanded now. It's become uh, basically half the caldera complex, and it's it's wide open south. But towards the south end of the Santa Barbara target, they keep seeing these whopping long intervals of mineralization. The most recent news release actually uh, includes an intercept of 169 gram silver equivalent. And it does, uh, the breakdown is 64 grams silver. So that's a little over two ounces silver per ton, as well as about 1.35% zinc lead and then uh, 0.07% tin. Uh, these values, you know, like, let, let me use a comparable. Okay. The, there's a mine nearby, the San Cristobal mine. 
it was found by Tom Thomas Kaplan and team, uh, you know, many years ago. It was put into production, I believe, in 2007. Uh, St. Cristobal ended up in Sumitomo's hands uh, around 2009, shortly after the GFC. Uh, anyway, Sumitomo's been operating this mine for 13 or 14 years now. And the average grade is about an ounce silver per ton, maybe a little bit more, but uh, you know, just over an ounce silver per ton, and about 1.5, 1.6% combined zinc lead. Well, the the drill holes that have been coming out of this, uh, you know, this Santa Barbara area here at uh, at Isca Isca are very much in line with those kind of numbers. You know, you're seeing one to two ounce silver, you're seeing about 1.35 up to 1.65% zinc lead primarily zinc but but you're also seeing a significant tin component okay now this system's a little different than san cristobal san cristobal is basically a pure zinc lead silver system this one has the tin component and tin trading at about forty thousand dollars per metric ton right now uh is this is not insignificant okay 0.11 percent tin for example you know that's a that that would be a little over uh, two. We'll call it two point three or four pounds of tin per ton. Well, you know that's in U.S. dollars right now. A pound is roughly twenty dollars. Okay, so you know you're talking about an additional, you know, call it maybe forty forty five dollars in in value of uh, from the tin alone. And so so that's a big kicker. And and in terms of economics, that could help this project tremendously. Not to say that it's needs all that much help it just you know it, it kind of supercharges the thing yeah uh did that so that hole is that that one i referred to was drilled for metallurgical purposes to get the material to test the metallurgy has the company put out any information yet uh on metallurgy because you know obviously it's a would seem to be a complicated not yet, not yet. I think they're doing systematic metallurgy in the mm-hmm. background as mm-hmm. they drill, mm-hmm. and I think they're going to continue to do that as they drill different areas. Uh, there's different metal ratios and stuff from place to place. Mm-hmm. And sure. I think what they're going to do is they'll probably do metallurgy on uh, a wide selection of different uh, styles of mineralization uh-huh. and bring it in as part of their PEA. But, uh, you know, people bring up metallurgy a lot, and I guess my answer to that is, uh, I've seen the the core, seen the mineralogic reports, you know, the petrography and so forth. And this is a very simple deposit. It's very much like uh, San Cristobal. You have uh, zinc in, in the form of sphalerite, which is a zinc sulfide. You got lead in the form of galena, which is a lead sulfide. You have silver in the form of a trace in the galena, as well as some silver, what we call sulfasalt minerals, so silver sulfide minerals. And then the tin occurs as cassiterite, which is uh, tin oxide. And it's actually uh, a very dense mineral, can be easily recovered through gravity process. Mm. So so basically the, the metallurgy, the, the size of the grain, the mineral grains and such, very similar to all the rest of the mega uh, polymetallic systems in Bolivia. And all of them have a very manageable metallurgical property so that you know i don't see any any issues with what we have right now no that's good news um well i just wonder there's several of these breccia pipes in this caldera that you pointed out but it it seems as though you know earlier on i thought there would be separate projects but as you referred to the santa barbara pipe or the santa barbara deposit uh is really about half of the caldera now it just keeps getting bigger and bigger are there some other pipes that will be explored yet? Uh, um, 
down in the south. I think, and, yes. and is it getting richer? Is the tin getting richer to the south of this uh, structure? Of this tin is definitely getting richer at depth. They've also hit some uh, high grade tin in I think one drill hole they had down at uh, this Porco area to the south. Yeah. They also had very very high tin in an adit, a historical adit that was uh, drifted in along a high grade structure. So there's very high tin in that. My bet is as they drill southward, as they march southward towards the Porco area, yes, you will see the uh, further breccia pipes that there is a breccia down, a, a large breccia body down there. But you'll also see start seeing the porphyry uh, itself, the the magma, the body of magma down there. Mm. Uh, it now cooled, of course. You know we're not talking about molten rock, but the, <laughs> the, the what we call the causative uh, intrusion is down there somewhere, and that's expressed in the geophysics. But it's also uh, you know been seen in the gray distribution of the drill holes uh, drilled thus far. It looks like things are definitely warming up at depth and and down down plunge to the south as as the company moves in that direction. My my bet is by the end of the day, and I, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago uh, on the Crescat video. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, the the strike of the Santa Barbara area is over 1.2 kilometers. What's been drilled? Uh, it's something around seven or eight hundred meters wide, and then d- to depth, it's probably six or seven hundred meters. You know that right there can host a lot of, of mineralization. It's not entirely mineralized, that entire volume. Sure. I would say maybe 35 to 40 percent is. You know, so you're, you're already looking at a deposit that could be uh, many hundreds of millions of tons. Now, as they go southward and expand this, they've got about another kilometer of runway, maybe 1.1 kilometers of runway. And this thing could end up being, uh, you know, a, a billion and a half ton deposit. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my view, you know, uh, so and it's going to be polymetallic. There's going to be areas where it's mainly, mainly, you know, zinc lead silver. There's going to be other areas where you're going to see tin in appreciable quantities. You're going to see other areas that perhaps have more copper and and gold even. So um, really interesting kind of smorgasbord of metals in the system. Yeah. Well, speaking of Crestcat gets active, your videos that you do every Friday. Uh, the one you were referring to, I think, a couple of weeks ago, you came up with some numbers, some possible, uh, some possible, and you and you walked the viewers through how you calculated the potential at an early stage, admittedly, very early stage still, um, but came up with a, a gigantic number, a potential number for silver, silver equivalent ounces, uh, and it pretty well blew me away when I heard those numbers. But I guess uh, this is a kind of a deposit that's easier to sort of come up with some numbers perhaps earlier than a lot of other deposits. Uh, it is. Uh, the limits of the deposit haven't been identified. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they keep drilling uh, holes. Like uh, there was one hole they drilled, I think, in this last news release that, that drilled kind of northeastward and really tested probably the, one of the most easternmost limits of the system. And, yeah, once again, they hit mineralization clear down to the bottom of the hole. My goodness. Uh, you know, the, up in the north, it's still open. Uh, certainly to the south, to the west, maybe it's a little more closed off at the, at this time. But, you know, by and large, it's open in, in all directions and at depth. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, I, I guess I would say, yes, it's a little easier to, to estimate. Uh, you know, but then then again, you know, you, you tend to under underdo things like, you, you know, when you, you can't see the limit, you don't know quite how, how big to make the, right. the box 
volume you're, right. you're estimating. So my hunch is like, hey, I'm very confident this will be north of a billion tons at the end of the day. Yeah, well, the numbers that you talked about uh, with just a portion of what you know you know what you know to be there based on the drilling that's done so far. Uh, not, I can't. I guess you can't say you know it ex- until you dr- until you drill it intensively enough to statistically be sure. But uh, the numbers are very, very. I mean, for a company with a market cap, what did I say? Uh, less than two hundred million U.S. in a, in a market right now that doesn't seem to want to even look at these kinds of companies. I think it's the time people should really be paying attention. You know, we we like to buy things when everybody else is buying them. Sometimes it's <laughs> the best time if you have some cash to to keep your eyes open for for stories like this, I think. So going through the drill program this year then, uh, how much are they going to be drilling and should we be hearing something on a pretty regular basis, Quentin? Yes, uh, I would expect a pretty steady stream of news, usually about once a month. It looks like they put out drill results, maybe maybe two weeks on the short end, maybe four weeks on the long end. Uh, I, they have a lot of drilling going. they got four rigs operating. How many meters they plan to drill at this point, I think is a bit of an open-ended question because mm-hmm. they do they do uh, continue to chase this thing, you know, especially to the south. I don't think there's any any question they're going to uh, drill that thing pretty intensively. Um, I think in the last news release, if you look at one of the two maps they had in there, you'll see a whole bunch of planned holes, both at the south end of the Santa Barbara target area, but also down in that Porco area. Mm-hmm. So that impression of how much you know how many meters they plan to drill it's, it's a lot you know we'll come out, you know a few tens of thousands of meters mm-hmm. i actually you know I'll, I'll give my two bits i i'd rather see the company uh, drill this thing aggressively and then worry about putting out a resource like mm-hmm. you know why put out a resource when you're in, in mineralization like this you know right. if it's open you, you might as well drill and drill and you know see see how far the thing goes before you kind of wrap a, a rope around it Obviously, the, the major mining companies that are interested in this sort of thing can do their own calculations and can come up with a, with a pretty educated guess about what's what's there. And it just keeps getting bigger. So I hear what you're saying, you know, and it, it probably makes sense from an investor's point of view, even though we would like to know, we'd like to get some sense of it. You provide a lot of information that helps investors at Crestcat gets active videos. And I would just I'd like my listeners to pay attention to that and go view those because it's a very educational video uh, that helps people understand, you know, early on what the prospects are. I, I know you're cautious in how you caveats that are behind uh, the numbers and things. Well, you don't provide that many numbers, but you help people understand the geology, you know, how nature put the minerals there and so forth. It's really interesting and I think also very, uh, very valuable for investors like myself, too. And I want to thank you for that. Anything else you'd like to tell us about? Uh, anything else yeah, you'd like, like to say uh, about the, LR? The current market route, uh, you know, once again, we're seeing junior mining companies, uh, you know, take a hit alongside everything else in the, on the planet. Um, but, you know, if people are smart, you know, park a little cash somewhere, be ready, because when the rebound happens, I think you're going to see the junior miners, especially in the precious metal space, really benefit from what's coming. And, uh, you know, you might as well get yourself positioned here. All right. Well, thank you, Quentin, very much for being with us uh, and giving us an update on this very exciting story. And we'll look to do it again sometime in the not-too-distant future, hopefully. Thank you, Dick. We do have to go to break now, but don't go away. Alistair McLeod will be with us to talk about how the Keynesian economic policies employed over the last number of decades have destroyed wealth and how that information can be used personally by yourself for your own gains. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Alistair McLeod. Timberline. 
Mine Resources is a mineral exploration and resource development company focused on gold discovery in the world-class mining jurisdiction of Nevada. The company's flagship Eureka project hosts a significant gold resource and drill-indicated upside potential at nearby higher-grade targets. Timberline Resources trades in Canada under the symbol TBR and on the OTCQB in the U.S. under the symbol TLRS. To learn more about this district-scale asset with exciting discovery potential, please visit www.timberlineresources.co. Reina Gold is a newly listed company trading on the OTCQB under the symbol REYGF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol REYG. Its flagship asset, La Gloria, is a 24,000-hectare district-scale property in the prolific Mojave Sonora Megashear in Mexico, between La Herradura, Mexico's biggest gold mine by Fresnillo, and El Shanate mine by Alamos Gold. La Gloria has very high-grade sampling and is in the first phase of a 10,000-meter drill program. The technical team is led by Dr. Peter McGaw, co-founder of Mag Silver, and Doug Kirwin, former VP of Ivanhoe Mines. Learn more at reinagold.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Really pleased to have Alistair McLeod with us once again. We're very privileged to have him at a time like this when markets seem to be spiraling out of control. The craziest markets that, well, I've seen some crazy ones, but this is this may be one that takes the cake. Uh, we'd like to remind you that Alistair puts out what I think is a must-read article every Thursday. You can, uh, you can access it by going to goldmoney.com. Go to the research page at goldmoney.com. And I think if you really want to sort of understand the underlying dynamics of why markets are behaving as they do rather than what you get from the popular press, uh, the propaganda primarily that you get from the press, that's the place to go, is goldmoney.com, the research page, every Thursday. Thank you, Alistair, for joining us once again. That's, that's my pleasure, Jay. It's really good to have you. Um, I do, I'd like to ask you a little bit about uh, an article on the 21st of April you wrote, Value Destruction. It seems to me that, uh, you know, and you said interest rates are really, it starts with interest rates, I think is the way you put it. And interest rates have been manipulated downward for decades, I, I would say, since 1980, uh, when we had those, in the U.S. at least, uh, I guess you're cycled a little different in, in the U.K., but in 1980 with Paul Volcker uh, finally putting an end to the enormous amount of money printing under Burns and uh, G. William Miller, the Federal Reserve chairman of that time, uh, and we were getting double-digit inflation, and there was really a great concern uh, that this thing could really get away from us and even uh, you know, come to, to a hyperinflationary uh, sort of condition. And Paul Volcker put his foot on the brakes and stopped printing money and left the interest rates rise to levels that were 
you know, far above the or above at least above the inflation rate. And now we have exactly the opposite as they did then. So I, I'm wondering if you could just maybe talk a little bit about just briefly sort of explain the Keynesian philosophy and how that contributed to the mess we're in right now. Well, it, it, it sort of started with Keynesian philosophy, but the problem is Keynesian ph- philosophy is rather like trying to nail a jelly to the wall. Huh. Uh, you know, it changes depending on the circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, really, I think the characteristic from uh, of, of markets from the early 1980s after that peak in uh, interest rates mm-hmm. uh, was the financialization of um, markets and bank activities. And the Glass-Steagall Act was um, rescinded, I think, under Car- Carter, and that was, what, 1991, 92, something like right. that? Not Carter, mm-hmm. sorry. Um, uh, uh, that was Clinton. under, yeah. <laughs> I'm getting my decade. Clinton, yes, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, of course, we had Big Bang in London, which basically allowed uh, banks to buy stockbrokers. And so, really, banks, you know, they, they switched from lending to business progressively towards lending for purely financial activities and of course um, you know the lending opportunities uh, for business were were really sort of disappearing as far as the big banks are concerned because manufacturing was all being outsourced to mm-hmm. Southeast Asia China whatever uh, and um, so they really um, financialized the whole thing and of course the thing that's really been good for um, a banking system which is completely financialized is the trend of interest rates because really what it's meant is that any collateral that a bank has against its loans or against um, uh, you know repos or whatever it might be uh, continues to increase in value over time because of falling interest rates mm-hmm. we've now come to an end of that process um, and this is the very very important point um, now that we've come to an end in that process, we find that prices measured even by a subdued uh, consumer price index are rising multiples above uh, where the central banks uh, are, are allegedly targeting. And mm-hmm. they don't actually know how to respond to this. The big, big problems um, are really in Japan where they still have negative interest rates and where the Bank of Japan has said that it will keep the 10-year JGB yield suppressed at 0.25%. No big figure, 0.25%. And that basically means that they're sacrificing the currency. And you just got to look at the chart of the yen against the dollar to see that that's the case. And also um, the ECB is is doing exactly the same thing. They're holding on to their negative minus a half percent deposit rate. Uh, and um, uh, consequently, the, the euro is going down as well. And this, I mean, the idea that the dollar is strong at the moment is actually less the case. It's more the ca- a case that it's other currencies which are collapsing faster than the dollar because mm-hmm. prices, um, the purchasing power of the dollar is is diminishing the whole time. I mean, mm-hmm. your CPI rate of inflation is what, 9% or something? Um, About that. I think we get another yeah. reading tomorrow, I think. I keep, on, I keep on losing track of the figures, yeah. <laughs> um, but we all know that the, you know, the statistics basically, um, you know, you can't rely on them, but we do know one thing, and that is that with uh, the purchasing power of currencies falling in the way they are, 
interest rates will have to rise. And we're not talking about a rise to 3%. We're not talking to 4%, 5%, 6%. We're talking about a blue sky rise. We don't know where it is going to go. The consequence of that, of course, is value destruction in the financial assets, which the whole of the global banking system has been gobbling up as collateral for the last, what, 30, 40 years. So mm -hmm. you can see that the, the there are the makings of a rather nasty crisis. And I mean, just put yourself in the shoes of the Bank of Japan. They've been doing QE since the year 2000. They have got enormous quantities of bonds. Uh, you know, government bonds, corporate bonds, and even equities on their balance sheet. They cannot afford to see the value of destruction that uh, is about to be wrecked upon them. And uh, it is it is actually, you know, for a central banker, it's a terrifying prospect because, I mean, okay, they can recapitalize it, but, uh, you know, they'll be recapitalizing the Bank of Japan at a time when, Undoubtedly, the same problems are hitting the commercial banking sector in Japan, where the uh, global systemically important banks, the big international banks, have uh, um, uh, debt, sorry, asset to equity mm -hmm. ratios well in excess of 20 times. Mm -hmm. You know, it, they cannot afford to see the value destruction, which is now occurring. And so you've got a central bank in trouble, and it's meant to be rescuing, if you like, ensuring that, that, that no bank fails. Um, this is a, not, a, not a good situation to be in. And of course, I think we've talked about this before, the situation in the Eurozone is even worse because uh, the ECB doesn't have a government to turn to. Its shareholders are the other national central banks. And the national central banks are in exactly the same position as the ECB. They are becoming rapidly insolvent, or their uh, the, uh, their, their their equity on the balance sheet is, uh, you know, properly valued is now negative, uh, and uh, again you have um, a banking system with uh, global systemically important eurozone banks with uh, asset to equity ratios well in excess of twenty times. Oh. This is this is not good. We cannot mm. afford to see interest rates rise as much as they are going to. And that is, it's the end of this financialization era. And mm -hmm. there's a guy from Credit Suisse called Zoltan Pozar who yes. uh, called, called this, you know, the ending of Bretton Woods 2. Bretton Woods mm -hmm. 2 being from uh, uh, 1971 to the current date and the emergence of Bretton Woods 3, where uh, the global um, monetary system is going to move more towards commodities and away from financial assets. Mm -hmm. um, and this, I think, is absolutely right. I mean, he put it in such a way which um, I think quite a lot of people find hard to understand. Mm -hmm. But if you think in terms of what the Russians are doing and what the Chinese are doing, I mean, particularly the Russians, they've cast themselves adrift from this financialization, mm -hmm. and uh, they've insisted on uh, commoditizing, in effect, uh, their ruble, uh, which um, is now more or less linked to the gold, uh, to the oil price. And mm -hmm. um, the result is that the ruble is now stronger than it was before the uh, invasion of Ukraine. Right. Exactly right. Uh, but the, the federal, the central banks are going to fight this thing tooth and nail, though, Alistair. They're going to fight. They're going to just, I mean, they're going, at what point are they going to give up? I mean, at what point are they going to realize that 
when the currency goes to zero? I mean, what what's going to have is it going to have to be um, like the like the Mississippi bubble situation before they finally finally give up? Well, it's exactly the same dynamics, um, yeah. for sure, but on a global scale. Um, yeah. I mean, John Law basically uh, got control over the currency as well as uh, running the if you like, the sort of the forerunner of a modern central bank. Um, and so he used the printing press to print um, uh, a currency, the Libra currency, and also credit to go into the market and buy shares to, su- to support the share price of, of his Mississippi venture. And the inevitably what, what happened was that it destroyed the currency. Um, and that's, we're seeing the same dynamics. I think the course is perhaps not a sort of, you know, a, uh, a, a sort of, if you like, a, an uninterrupted um, straight line decline. Uh, we are going to get a crisis in the middle of this, and I think the crisis is 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 going to be um, a major, major problem. And I, I think the elements to it are uh, the ending of the financialization, banks finding that their collateral is collapsing in value, um, the banks themselves needing rescuing, and the central banks having absolutely no alternative. Uh, but to bail out the whole of the banking system. Mm-hmm. I would say there's a slight caveat, and that is that after the Lehman crisis, uh, all the G20 uh, member nations passed laws um, uh, authorizing central banks to do bail-ins. Yes. Now, if they go down that route, I'm afraid, um, uh, well, I mean, either way, it's going it, you know, the whole thing's going to come apart. But if they try and go down that route, they will create another crisis because uh, any bondholder in a bank is going to just want to get the hell out of it yeah. uh, because he's not going to want his 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 uh, bonds turned into worthless equity. Mm-hmm. So that's roughly, you know, it's 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 going. I think we're going to have a crisis, um, and the crisis. I don't know. I just feel that it's not very far away. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I see things unraveling in the way I expect them to unravel. Mm-hmm. We're seeing the markets beginning to wake up to the interest rate problem and um you know next i think it's going to be it's going to be the banking system and um, uh, we're already seeing this beginning to happen on major currencies particularly the uh the euro and uh, the japanese yen right and as the currencies go down of course that means the purchasing power uh, you've got a restless population and a democratic system where people i mean it, it, it certainly seems to be all of a sudden uh, here, there was a recogn- recognition that uh, inflation wasn't transitory, that it was going to get worse, it was getting worse, uh, and I think there's still a lot of false hope, perhaps, that somehow we're going to be able to get this under control, back under 2% inflation rates or whatever they, they're talking about. Um, it, it, just, uh, it just doesn't seem as though that, that can happen. Of course, they'll try price controls and all manner of other, other things as well to try to um, – um, you know, to try to stop uh, this thing from taking place. Uh, but do you see? Do you see any any hope? And and I'm wondering, you know, right now the Fed is is taking a, a tougher stance. It seems, at least rhetorically, it is. Do you think that we might have to see some sort of a financial crisis meltdown before the Fed gets scared and starts turning around and 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 putting QE back into effect? Because it seems to me the Fed is most concerned about about the member banks. Yes, I think that's right. Um, but I, I think the crisis actually starts not with the dollar and the Fed. I think it starts um, with with Japan and uh-huh. uh, the eurozone. And we're talking about 
uh, two enormous, enormous monetary system counterparties to the American banking system. So the idea that the problems in Japan and the problems in the, in the Eurozone are going to stop there, we can forget that. And I think, I mean, underlying this, we've got ourselves into this position, uh, uh, Jay, because nobody understands inflation. They don't mm -hmm. understand what alters the purchasing power of a currency. Right. You know, they think, um, uh, you know, a monetarist will tell you that it's, it's um, you know, the quantity of money. Now, the quantity of money obviously has a huge, great uh, influence. But actually, uh, what really can happen, and I think what we will see happening is that people will just lose confidence in their currencies. And because they're not backed by money, legal yeah. money, and legal mm -hmm. money is gold and nothing else, mm -hmm. uh, they will, at some stage, I think, just uh, want to get the hell out of currencies and get into whatever they can before the prices rise, before, um, you know, uh, things are not available, whatever. I mean, whatever will cause the stampede out of currencies, you're going to see it. And that will be uh, what destroys their purchasing power. Well, it's a, a certain amount of pain, trillions of dollars of paper money uh, in the financial markets already disappearing. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's got to be some some angst among a lot of people already. And, uh, it, you know, it hasn't been that much of a decline yet. But, uh, well, I guess the NASDAQ is down 24 percent or something like that. Uh, so that's that's not nothing. But. Uh, Michael Oliver thinks that we're we could be headed for one of the most serious uh, declines ever in our in American history, but uh, I don't know if that's overstating it or not. Who knows for sure? But uh, another article that the latest one that you wrote, "Financial War Takes a Nasty Turn," uh, and this this really I guess has a lot to do with the financial war that's going on between the powers, so the United States, uh, say um, NATO, the United the Western world, and the Asian. Uh, markets. Uh, you started out this article, uh, you said, and I quote, the chasm between Euro, uh, Eurasia and the Western defense groups, NATO, Five Eyes, and AUKUS, is widening rapidly. While media commentary focuses on the visible side of the conflict in the Ukraine, the economic and financial aspects are what really matters. Uh, can you can you talk about that a little bit with the few minutes we have left? Just maybe, yeah. yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, basically, uh, this has been a financial war. And of course, um, you know, nobody really comments on the financial aspects of the geopolitical situation, mm -hmm. um, uh, simply because, uh, you know, if you've got, a, um, let's say, a newspaper readership, I mean, they understand war in the, in the more physical sense, mm -hmm. uh, but to try and get a message over, and particularly when journalists don't actually understand it either. Um, right. It's, it's not surprising that uh, this aspect of it has been neglected and very, very badly neglected. But there is no doubt that um, the uh, Russians and the Chinese uh, have long had this sort of view that they needed to have a nuclear option. And I mean a financial nuclear option, mm -hmm. not a physical nuclear option mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to protect themselves. And it is for this reason that the Chinese have accumulated huge amounts of gold off balance sheet, as it were. The Russians, I understand, I'm told, have also. Now, I can't, I can't verify this, but um, I am told by sources which I have found in the past to be reliable that the Russians have got an extra 10 to 12,000 tons of gold wow. off balance sheet. Now, that is more than the declared amount that uh, the U.S. government has. Uh, now, 
I, you know, I've known this for some time, and um, I, it always struck me that if the worst comes to the worst, then China and Russia would back their currencies with gold, and we would all sink as a result. It's not playing out that way. Instead of gold, they are using commodities, if you like, as uh, the equivalent of gold. And this is this is the importance of the move to link the ruble to the price of oil. And in my view, I think that the price of oil is likely to go considerably higher. Now, I know that the Keynesians will say that, you know, the economy is going into recession and that means lower prices. No, it doesn't mean lower prices. What happens is the purchasing power of the currencies falls. Yeah. That is why you're going to get higher prices, irrespective of how the economy is playing, playing out. And the Russians know this. And what they're doing is they're divorcing themselves from the West. And in divorcing themselves from the West, they will have interest rates which are falling while ours are rising. They will have um, uh, a far sounder economy without the transfer of wealth through the inflation factor mm -hmm. uh, from ordinary citizens into the government's hands. Um, and, you know, putting the whole thing together, you have got the world's largest exporter of commodities saying we're going to base our currency on commodities. And mm -hmm. China is the largest exporter of uh, manufactured and semi-manufactured goods, and they will be doing exactly the same. They, mm -hmm. they, you know, she and Putin are working together, mm -hmm. and uh, there is absolutely, um, you know, no way we can defeat that. Uh, and I just, you know, I, I think we have lost the financial war. That yeah. is what I now see. So they are playing the nuclear option in the financial war. Yeah. It is, you know, it is not a nuclear option in the physical sense. Right. All right. We're going to have to leave it go with that, Alistair. I think uh, people really need to check out your work uh, at the Gold Money website every Thursday. And there's a lot of detail in what Alistair was just talking about. Uh, the financial war takes a nasty turn. And how, if we went to a gold standard, it would what would need to unfold uh, for that to happen. For But in the meantime, it is a, uh, a commodity-backed currency, and the ruble is getting strong while the financial-backed currencies are, are really going in the opposite direction. Alistair, thank you so much for spending time with us once again. Always great to have you. The insights are, are really very, very valuable, so thank you so much. Sorry. All right, folks, uh, we'll have to leave it go with that. Next week, uh, Kevin Duffy will be my main guest. He's a coffee can portfolio, uh, and he also is a hedge fund manager, done very well in the past. Uh, during these kinds of markets, so you want to hear what he has to say. Maybe a surprise guest like Bob Moriarty or someone else will join me as well. Until then, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 